Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. I didn't introduce myself before. Let me do that now. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's good to see all of you this morning. We continue in this series in the letter of Paul to the Roman Christians. Uh, we've spent the first five uh, weeks of this series going through uh, chapter one. So if you've done the math and you're thinking, holy cow, we're going to be here forever. Um, don't worry, we're going to speed up a little bit. But these are important things. And this is really a letter it's hard to, to not go really slowly through and really try to dig, dig into. It could be worse. Uh, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. John Piper took 22 weeks to finish chapter one. Uh, which means they took about eight years to get through the get through the letter uh, because there are just such important things here. Uh, we will not be that slow, but we will we will uh, we will take some time. We come to the uh, second chapter now, and uh, we we change subjects a little bit. I would remind you that that the Romans is Paul's gospel, and that the core of the gospel, as we read in chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen, is uh, righteousness, the righteousness of God from God. A righteousness that God has provided for man that comes by faith. That is, a righteousness that comes only when you know that your moral resume is trash and you finally look out of yourself, outside of yourself, to Jesus. And you sing, as we sing, Lord, I need you, my righteousness. That when you put your whole hope and trust in what he has done for you, no longer relying upon yourself, that's what the Bible means by faith. And so in order to receive the righteousness revealed in the gospel, according to the Apostle Paul, you have to be reduced to nothing. In other words, the only thing you need to get the righteousness you need is nothing. But the problem is we all have something. And so the first work that God must do in your life to bring you to faith is to take away your righteousness. He does this by introducing some sort of spiritual trauma. That is, in the first chapter, the reason for this doctrine that's so scary that we spent some time dealing with, the doctrine of the wrath of God in verse 18, that the wrath of God is being poured out against sin, and it's being confronted with that reality that in induces the trauma that causes us to look to God for what we cannot provide for ourselves. When that happens to a person, however, their first impulse is something like this, often anyway. We say, I've been really bad. And I know that now. I, I realize that. So I'm going to change. And I'm going to become a really good person. And my hope is that in becoming good, I can make up for all the bad that I've done. And that'll be how this works. Well, in the book of Genesis, which is not only history, it's not only a history of sin, it's also psychology of sin. And that's really important to, to remember. In that book, when the man and the woman realize their nakedness, do you remember the very first thing they do? What's the very first thing they do? 
They try to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. Now, here's what I want to say to you is that is what we mean when we use the word religion. That is what we mean by that word religion. We're going to use that word a lot today, and that's the picture that I want you to have in your imagination. Religion is the impulse when you realize you have no righteousness, when you're standing before God naked with nothing to bring to him, no, nothing that, that can lay any claim on him, no, no good work that he can look at and say, because of that, I will, nothing, nothing in your hands you bring. And when, you, when, when that happens to you, when that happens to you, when you realize you, <laughs> you have nothing with which to come to him with, but then you turn and the solution becomes that you try to, on your own, provide a righteousness for yourself to become religious or moral, whatever word you want to use, and then look down, what happens is when that happens, often it leads to looking down on other people, immoral people, and saying things like, well, man, I'm better than them. At least I, I'm better than them. At least I got it more together than, you know, so-and-so. And that is what Paul is trying to take away. He's trying to take that whole thing away in order to lead us to the gospel. And to embrace the gospel, we have to lose our religion. Because they're, not, they're opposed to one another. Now notice how Paul does this. He spent all of Romans 1 addressing the sin of irreligious people. That's what really Romans 1 is about. In Romans 2, he begins to address the sins of religious people. And he, the point he's going to labor to make is this, that the solution to immorality, which we see very clearly there in chapter 1, is not morality. Instead, both the immoral, irreligious person and the moral, religious person are under the wrath of God. Both are because righteousness isn't dependent upon whether you're good or bad. Romans 2 is addressed, you'll notice, to the person who reads, get this, Romans 2 is addressed to the person who reads Romans 1 and says, well, at least I'm not like those people. And the purpose of the second chapter, to quote the immortal Lee Corso, is not so fast, my friend. You're not any different than them. You, too, despite your moral high ground, are without the righteousness that you need to be right with the God who is righteous because... As Romans 3 goes on to say later, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now in Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable about a father with two sons. You're probably familiar with the story. Two brothers. The younger brother asks for his inheritance early and then goes far away to spend it on sexual exploits and lavish living. He's materialistic. He's licentious. He, he's, you know typical secular person in our culture. He, he's the bad son. The older brother, you remember as the story goes along, is very obedient, very compliant to the father. He obeys everything the father says. And when, but when his brother returns home from his being in the far country and all of the money is gone, what happens to him is we, we learn that he is full of resentment and hatred towards his younger brother because he's the good son. He wants uh, the inheritance that is due to him because of of course, all the obedience that he's offered to the father. So he's the good son. Two sons. One of them's bad, one of them's good. One of them's very much like the people in Romans chapter 1. The other's very much like the people in Romans chapter 2. And the, the point of Jesus' story is that both, both of them are alienated from the father. They both need salvation. Religious people, 
can be every bit as lost and in need of salvation as irreligious people. And that's the point of Jesus' story, and that's the point that Paul's making here as we transition into this second chapter. He's wanting us to see that a Christian is a person who not only repents of their sin, but a true Christian is a person who repents of both sin and righteousness. In other words, they don't just repent of their bad and become good. That's a religious person, and we have to make that distinction. Tim Keller says, you know, whenever you preach the gospel to people, they hear you calling them to religion, and we want to make sure we get that right. We are not talking about bad people becoming good people. That's religion. That's a religious person. A Christian is a person who repents of all of their bad, and then as they become good, they start repenting of all of their good because they know their good will never be good enough. And that the only way... To get the righteousness of God that comes uh, to them is from faith. It's the righteousness of God that must come to them. And so we learn here about the failure of religion. That's the title of the sermon this morning. And we're going to see three things about religion as we walk through this passage quickly together this morning. I want you to see as we talk about, we need to make the distinction here between the immoral people in the first chapter and the moral people in the second chapter. And and what Paul's trying to do is say, you know, you want to think of yourself as different, but you're not. You're very much the same. And so we need to see how religion really doesn't get us any further down the road of solving this problem of righteousness than than all of the stuff that's happening in chapter one does. And we we see that by, by diagnosing what we mean by religion here under these three headings. We want to first see the engine of religion. What's really under the surface that's driving this approach to God. Secondly, Paul's very clear that there's a hypocrisy that comes in this religious construct, and we want to make sure we see that as well. But then thirdly, of course, we want to find the cure so that we can become people who move beyond just becoming religious to people who really enjoy the freedom and power of the Spirit. So the engine, the hypocrisy, and the cure for religion, as we're careful not to just become religious people who are just as far away from the Father's heart as the irreligious people we are so prone to look down on are. You with me? Well, let's look together first. We want to see what I've called the engine of religion, the internal driving mechanism behind this approach to God. Notice who this chapter is addressed to in verse 1. He says, to every one of you who judges... So these people Paul is now turning to are passing judgment on the irreligious people he's just described in chapter 1. They're assuming their own moral superiority. And this word judge is really important. It keeps coming up in these verses. But what does it mean? Well, the first thing that we should say in trying to answer that question is that the Bible elsewhere actually commands us to judge one another. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 6, for example, says that, we, that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will judge even the angels. And if we're going to do that, then we ought to be you know, able to do some making, making judgments about one another as well. So it actually can be a very good thing. But judge here doesn't mean to look at something and say that's wrong, which is a very good thing, by the way. It's a very good thing to look at wrong and say that's wrong. You with me? That's a good thing. It isn't, it isn't moral evaluation that Paul's talking about here, which is right and good. It is a claim to moral superiority. It means to see the sin of others and feel smug and self-satisfied, to observe where people are failing and feel morally superior to them and then look down on them and, and say, well, I would never do that. I'm better than that. And then to elevate yourself above the other person, you know, to, to have in your heart kind of reverberate, well, I'm okay, but you're, you're obviously not. Tim Keller, in a sermon that he preached on this text, he recalled a book that was an enormous bestseller that came out in the 1970s. So uh, I'll say before my time, but not I was born in 75, so maybe not so much. But I would have been too young to read it. So before my time. And the title of the book was, 
I'm okay, you're okay. Oh, see, some people, there you go, some people remember. And uh, it was this little self-help book, and you can imagine the kind of message that it contained. I don't, probably don't need to describe it to you. I'm okay, you're okay. Well, in the 90s, a woman named Wendy Kamenier wrote a book critiquing that particular book and, and the self-help movement in general. And the title of her book, uh, as kind of a, you know, a jab, she entitled her book, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. And, uh, that's, uh, and the purpose of the book was to show how narcissistic the I'm okay, you're okay movement was. I mean, look at the world. There's great evil out there, right? Of course we're not okay. Something's really wrong with us, and anybody who doesn't have their head in the sand is going to realize that. The problem was, about 10 years later, she came out with a, with, a, with a second book because she realized that she had left the door open for people to begin to use her book but twist the message. And so she wrote another critique of this abuse, and she called that book, the subtitle at least, said this. Her, the title was, I'm okay, but the rest of you are no way okay. And here's, here's the point. There were two different things that she was critiquing. On the one hand, uh, to say, I'm okay and you're okay. It's just okay. I'm okay, you're okay. It's naive and it's narcissistic. But to say, I'm okay, but you're in no way okay. I mean, that's just, that's just as dangerous. To say, I have the truth, and everybody else is evil. I mean, that's how you get Hitler. That's how you, that's how you get racism. That's where all those things come from. See, so I'm okay, you're okay doesn't work. And I'm okay, but you're in no way okay doesn't work either. What's left? Well, what's left is the teaching of the Bible. And the teaching of the Bible is very plain. We are all sinners. We are all lost. Nobody has the right to look down on anybody else. We are all in trouble. We're all alienated from God. I'm not okay. But you're not okay either. Religious people stand just as condemned as irreligious people. Why? Because the strategy that, that religious people use for righteousness is a strategy that just says, all I have to do is to be better than. It's a strategy of better than. And, that's, you know, and we would say that's not enough. The whole point of judging is to come out with higher grades than whomever you're putting yourself up against. Judging someone is, is a very keen strategy of highlighting their failures and their sins and putting all of the attention on their negatives so that your own negatives stay hidden. It's really brilliant. You shine the spotlight on the things in other people that you know they're bad at and you're good at so that you always come out on top. Works righteousness is by definition competitive. You don't have to be good. You, that word just loses all sense of meaning. All you have to do is be better than. I, I, guilty confession, guilty pleasure. I, I, just, I, just, am, I just love uh, the show on TV, The Big Bang Theory. It's about a bunch of nerds. Uh, and I was, I am one, so maybe I identify. Uh, but there's this episode where, where one of these guys... Finally, uh, he, he, he takes in his childhood bully to, to stay the night with them because the guy's in trouble. And in the morning, he realizes he's been taking advantage of him again, and he gets really mad. And so he finally stands up. He gets the courage to stand up to his childhood bully, and he pushes him in the chest. And then he realizes, uh-oh, I've just made a big mistake because the guy's, you know, the football jock and athletic and whatnot. And then the show, it cuts to the next scene where he and his roommate Sheldon are running down the stairs and out of their, out of their uh, apartment complex in their pajamas and Leonard says, you know, do you think we can outrun him? And Sheldon replies, I don't need to outrun him. I just need to outrun you. 
<laughs> right? And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's the better than. Uh, the engine, the engine of religion. I thank you, God, that I am not like. And then fill in the blank. Comparative righteousness. Judging is the way that you stay at the top of the rankings. You keep the sins of others under a microscope. You constantly point out every little infraction. And at the same time, you ignore or just become ignorant of your own shortcomings and failures. And that's how you keep your righteousness. What Paul's going to go on to teach us, though, is it's a sham. It's an absolute sham. Because the second thing here is not only do we see this engine of judging that really is behind this approach to God, but we see how there's hypocrisy in it as well. And so secondly, let's talk about the hypocrisy of religion. <clears throat> so come to verse 2, where Paul goes on to talk to these people. He says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. He uses similar language. If you have a Bible, and you can look there later in the chapter, I should have printed it for you down in verses 21 and 20 through 23. He says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. So Paul's exposing hypocrisy. That's really what this whole chapter is about, is the hypocrisy of these religious people who would look at all the people in Romans chapter 1 and say, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. These people have been condemning and excluding others for things that Paul is bringing to light that they themselves are guilty of. Now what's really going on here? We're told in the next verse, verse, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them, them, them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? And here, see, here we get to the very bottom of what's really happening. Paul says we're all trying to escape God's judgment. That's what he says. You see that there? That there's this innate instinct in us to try to escape this idea of judgment. We know instinctively that there is an objective standard that we are held to and that we do not measure up and therefore we are liable to judgment. And the, the, the Bible says it's the absolute scariest thing that we can imagine. And so we're constantly looking for an escape, a, a psychological release from the tension and the pressure of knowing that one day we will stand before God in judgment, which is what we're going to talk about next week, by the way. And sometimes all of this happens on a subconscious level. We don't even know we're doing it. But one way of psychologically denying the reality of judgment what Paul's teaching here is to become a judge of other people's sins. To convince yourself that there's no one to judge you, but that you're free to judge everyone else. In Luke 6, Jesus uses similar language to Romans chapter 2, where he's described the way we take the speck out of someone else's eye while ignoring the log on our own. Are you familiar with this passage of scripture, probably, if you've been around the church? He calls it hypocrisy there in Luke 6. You hypocrite, he says. First, take the log out of your own eye. And that's interesting to me because according to Jesus, a judgmental attitude is hypocrisy. Why? Well, to begin with, the word hypocrite refers to an actor. In Jesus' day, actors wore masks. So if you were playing a character that was joyful, you would wear a mask with a smiley face on it. It didn't matter what frame, you know, what your actual emotional state was because whatever you were feeling or thinking or whatever was hidden by the mask that was that was in front of your face if you were playing a character that was sad you would wear a mask with a frown but the mask the point of the mask was is that it hid what you really were like what you were feeling what what the real state of your of your life was and all good acting is like that 
I mean, the actors who receive the Academy Award nominations are those who are able to transform themselves into the role so that they become something they're not. We forget who they are because they become so immersed in, in the role. And that's the reason for the metaphor. Here's what Jesus is teaching us, that, that we all want to hide the truth about ourselves. And one of the best ways to hide the truth about ourselves is to live with a judgmental spirit because it allows you to hide. You divert attention away from the truth about you by finding fault in others, by drawing everyone's attention away from you and onto the shortcomings of others. You, you look out so that you don't have to look in and face the truth of your own sin. In Genesis 3, after they ate the forbidden fruit, God came to the man and he said, what have you done? Do you remember that? What have you done? And that, that right there is what the Bible means by judgment. That moment, that standing before God to answer that question. What have you done? And what was the man's response? Do you remember? It's classic man behavior. Do you remember what he did? He pointed his finger at the woman and he said, not me. Her. Not me. Her. What's he doing? Yeah, blame. He's trying to escape. And what's his strategy? He's wanting to take God's eyes, the burning, brilliant, holy eyes of God that are, that are searing his soul. And saying, don't look at me. Look at her. It's her fault. So he can slink back into the shadows. This is a strategy for righteousness. But the text says that when you do that, there's a big problem. When you do that, when you live like that, you end up blind. One of the hallmarks of religious hypocrisy is blindness. You clearly see the problems in everybody else, but you come to not be able to see the truth about yourself. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones as he summarizes the teaching of these verses. He says, this is just, this is a sledgehammer. He says, we see so clearly as it applies to others, but never in the case of ourselves. We tend to be blind to our own sins, how easy it is to say, I do hope so-and-so was in the service this morning. It was just for him. We protect ourselves. We can easily apply the truth to others. And we have not seen that there was anything in it applicable to ourselves. Is it not astounding that we can see these things so clearly in others and yet find it so difficult to see exactly the same thing in ourselves? And even if it is pointed out to us, we are ready always to excuse it or to explain it away. We see, he goes on, we see with absolute clarity in the case of others, but when we look at ourselves, we somehow do not see it. The truth being, of course, that we do not like looking at ourselves. That is a perfect description of these people in Romans 2. They've been reading what Paul has written in Romans 1, and they said, Amen. What a great sermon. I wish I invited my friend. He needed to hear that. I can think of so many people who should have been here this morning. And of course the whole time not realizing that they were the ones that needed to hear it most of all. In John 9, Jesus healed a blind man and it brought much condemnation from the religious leaders. But the healing, we're, we're told as we read, there was a parable. For Jesus goes on to say, For judgment I came into the world that those who see might not... Might excuse me, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. The religious leaders there were judging Jesus because of the miracle. They called him a sinner. 
they were certain that some foul spirit was at play in his ministry. And this was a real problem for them. They were always looking at others and wagging their fingers because they were so sure that they saw all the wrong in everybody else. But in the process, they became blind to the truth about themselves. So hear me. To know that you know when it comes to everybody else and to not know that you don't know when it comes to yourself, that's a dangerous place to be spiritually. Love, love knows that it doesn't know. And that's the way to wisdom. So a couple of warnings before we move on to the third and final uh, thing I want to say this morning. A couple of warnings just as we make application of this. And the first would be, be very careful of absolute certainty in your moral evaluation of others. Be very careful of absolute certainty in your moral evaluations of others. Pride knows. Love is curious. Love never assumes it knows the truth about other people. How, how can you possibly know what's true of someone on the inside? You don't have eyes to see past their actions to their heart. Also, the Bible says it's silly to think you could see clearly to deal with the speck in someone else when you have a big log in your own eye that's preventing you from being able to see rightly. Your own sin and selfishness keep you from being objective, always. We are never objective when it comes to one another. We're never objective when it comes to one another. Which is why we should always be suspicious of the conclusions we come to. Be careful of absolute certainty in your moral evaluations of others. But secondly... Be careful of singling out specific sins, like homosexuality, for example, in chapter 1, and making a big deal out of that one sin and then ignoring other sins or ignoring the root causes of sin that we all share, of course. We all make the sins we don't struggle with the really big ones. A reminder, sin takes many forms, but all sin is the same essence, ungodliness and unrighteousness, verse 18 of chapter 1. It is failure to properly honor God and to love neighbor either through what we do or what we fail to do. There is no less sin in these people in chapter 2. There's just less conspicuous sin. Chapter 1 is sin in high definition. Chapter 2 is subtle sin. So the sins of the prodigal and the sins of the older brother looked very different, but their essence was the same. They both doubted the father's heart. They both were oriented towards works and not grace. But they looked very different. So... This is what we have to be careful of. So let me finish by asking, what's the cure then? How do we change? Anybody want to change? I do. How do we change? What sparks true repentance in religious people like me? Well, we have to follow Paul's argument. He's addressing those who pass judgment on others because they're trying to escape being judged themselves, not knowing, as he says, that they are guilty of the same things they condemn in everybody else. Maybe not the same sins, but at least the same root causes. These people mull over the very worst of others in order to feel better about themselves to make sure they always come out on top, better than. And this distorts their view of God's kindness and forbearance and patience there, verse 4. And that is the root problem. Do you see where Paul's taking us? So the cure is to have a right understanding of those attributes of God, his kindness, forbearance, and patience. Paul says that the root problem in these people is that they're presuming upon God's kindness and forbearance and patience. And it's an interesting word, that word presume. There, there's something really fascinating going on here. In one sense, the person Paul's describing is assuming too much about God's kindness. There are many forms of this. Let me just name a couple. There's the person who, 
who says, as 1 Peter 3 that David read a few minutes ago says, well, God's just slack. He's all bark, no bite. When it comes down to it, he makes strong statements, but then he doesn't do anything about it at the end of the day. And kindness here means no more wrath. God is only love. He, he's put all that other stuff aside. Or there's the person who says, it doesn't matter how, I, how much I sin. God's grace is greater than my sin. Paul's going to deal with that in a couple of you know, chapters. So I can sin as much as I want, and God will still love me. That's antinomianism. That's, that's not having any category for the goodness of the law of God. But then there's the more religious version, which goes something like, well, I'm in a special position. I've got the right theology, you see. Or I have the right baptism. And so it doesn't matter how I live. And this is the Jews, which many commentators say Paul's addressing here in chapter 2. We're God's special people. We're the children of Abraham. That trumps everything else. Whatever form it takes, it's the same distortion. Here's what these people are, are believing, that God is kind and patient, but his kindness and his patience only apply to me. I get kindness, but you don't. And that's the irony. I, listen, listen, just a window into my heart, okay? So hopefully you can see a window into yours. I expect God to be kind and forgiving to me in my sins. But I think that the right response to your sins is harshness and correction. And that's why Paul says ultimately, in making too much of God's kindness towards yourself, you're making too little of God's kindness towards everybody else. And that's really what the word presume in verse 4 means. It means to despise, to think too little of. And so the problem with religious people is that they think too narrowly about God's kindness and patience. They apply it too sparingly. It only applies to them, not to anyone else. And that's why the word riches, do you see that there? It's the riches, the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. It's so important. So we should define our terms as we come to a close. And here's what we mean by these words. Kindness refers to the will to do good, to dispose yourself toward the good of someone else. The opposite would be something like severity and selfishness, forbearance, and patience really are two words that go together, and they mean that God patiently endures our sins, that he does not quickly move towards punishment, but he restrains the execution of his justice over a long period of time. In the case of Second Peter, over 2,000 years of time now, Peter says God's slowness to bring judgment is his patience. God is not slow. He's patient. He is intentionally taking his time to give us every opportunity to come to our senses and turn to him. In God, there are riches of kindness and patience. And that, mean, that word means a treasury of endless wealth. In other words, God never runs out of goodness and patience. He has an unlimited supply. You know why that's good news? There is enough patience and forbearance and kindness in God for you and for me. The cure, then, is to know the riches of his kindness. And in his letter to Titus, Paul said, Titus 3, chapter 3, verse 4, that God's goodness and kindness have appeared. Isn't that a funny way of putting that? that? That God's goodness and kindness have appeared. God is invisible, but there was a time, according to Paul there, where his goodness and his kindness were made visible. They put on flesh and blood and walked the world for all to see. Of course, in the coming of Jesus Christ, he is the living embodiment of God's grace to us. The Bible says in John chapter 3, we love to quote Chapter John three sixteen. Don't ever can I give you a piece of advice? Don't ever quote John three sixteen without quoting John three seventeen. 
They go together. And, they may, and it makes sense of the verse. Here's what John 3, 17 says, that Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. Because that's God's heart. Do you hear me? That's God's heart. The impulse of God's heart is for salvation, not judgment. Jesus died on the cross as the ultimate reveal of God's stunning mercy. And there's only one way to be saved, not to be better than, but to be in him. There's only one way to get the righteousness that you need, and it's his righteousness. But if it's his righteousness and not yours, then no one is superior to anyone else. There is only one way to escape the judgment of God, and that is to look at the cross. The first installment of God's judgment day, the sun went dark, the earth shook. God's wrath against sin was poured out upon the Savior, bearing our sins upon the cross in our place. After that, no one gets to pass judgment on anyone else ever again. And the way into his kindness and patience, we're told, is through repentance. And so if you're here and you're a Romans 1 person, this is what repentance looks like for you. Your whole life is propped up by God's kindness and patience. Every sunrise, every cool breeze that's coming this week. Amen? You're going to wake up Wednesday morning and do a jig. It's coming. And it should cause you to fall on your knees and say, thank you, God, for your kindness. Florida's been waiting on this for like 10 months. Every sunrise, every cool breeze, every beautiful moment, they are all God's good gifts to you. And so to repent, if you want me to lead you in what repentance, do you know what repentance means? Repentance just means you stop and you say thank you. It's that simple. This comes from you. It's your acknowledgement of the source of the good things in your life, that you stop claiming that for yourself. You acknowledge that your self-centered way of living is what's killing you. And you turn back to the one who made you. You turn away from sins and embrace God's kindness to you in Jesus Christ. Don't get religion. Get Jesus. If you're a Romans 2 person, however, repentance for you means something different. It means you stop looking down your nose at all the Romans 1 people. You stop thinking of yourself as being better than everyone else and you turn away from your righteousness and you embrace God's grace and kindness to you in Jesus. You lose your religion too. Now there's just, I know I keep saying this, but this is really the truth. There's just, just one more thing. And that's this, that God's kindness is the end and the beginning of repentance, that the goal of our repentance is God's kindness. Do you see that? But also the, the very repentance, uh, excuse me, the way to repentance is his kindness as well. Paul writes, God's kindness leads you to repentance. That's so important. That's so important. God's kindness brings you to repentance. Not judgment. Not the threat of judgment, the experience of kindness. How does a person change? How does a person change? How does a child change? Not through guilt. Not through shame. Change comes through kindness. It comes from knowing God's kindness. The problem here is the not knowing. Do you see that verse 4? Not knowing. There's a not knowing that's happening here. And the not knowing means not considering, not paying attention to. And that's our problem. What gets, what gets most of your attention? Is it the sin that plagues you? Is that what you've put your eyes on the most? Is that what gets the most of your attention and fascination? The sin that plagues you so that you constantly feel condemned and discouraged? Or is it the sins and shortcomings of others so that you feel annoyed and self-righteous? Or is it the kindness and the patience of God towards you and towards them? What lens are you looking at life through? That's the application of this text. And here's the thing, the goal of friendship, because I really do think that's where the text leads us, the goal of friendship 
as we, as we become a church of people together, what, what is the goal of our relating to one another? It is to get one another to God's kindness in Jesus Christ. The goal of marriage is to get one another to the kindness, to God's kindness in Jesus Christ so that we can experience change. What's the goal of parenting? It is to get your kids to the kindness of God in Jesus Christ so that they can experience change. That's how we can really help one another. How do we do that? How do we get one another to God's kindness? By being kind. By overlooking sin. By being patient with one another as we struggle along. By speaking the truth when we must, but always in love. And sometimes by just going to somebody's house and sitting and crying with them because that's all you can do. Kindness leads to repentance. Oh, the depth of the riches of God's kindness to us in Jesus Christ. That is the end of religion. In the beginning of new life, power, freedom, and joy in God, in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we would ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we, too, have presumed upon your kindness. The ways that we remain slothful in our sin because we just expect that, that forgiveness uh, is on the other side of whatever wrongdoing we may do that we take advantage of your generosity and love the way kids take advantage of their parents all the time. Oh, forgive us. Forgive us that, that we don't wake up every morning awed and fall to our knees and say thank you. There's such, there's such, there's such a drought of kindness in our world, and we have contributed to that. And the hope, the hope is the kindness that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ, so would you help us? Would you help us to anchor our hearts to the hope of that kindness which you show in Jesus, and would you help us to be kind, kind to ourselves and kind to one another so that we might come to know the riches, the riches of your kindness and forbearance and patience to us in Jesus Christ. And that may unleash in us a song of thanksgiving and praise, a life of devotion and obedience and worship that would bring honor and glory to you, which is what we desire to do. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a great truth. Amen. You with me? Are you guys? Hello. You there? Are you awake? Are you live? All right. Praise the Lord. Hey, one thing. Um, we have called a congregational meeting for today. Uh, that is, it's a family meeting. It really is meant to be for members, members of the church. We're going to talk about intimate family type things. Um, if, you're not a, if you're not a member, we don't want to exclude you from anything. If it's your desire to sit in on the family meeting, you're more than welcome to do that. But just, it is a family meeting, so we're going to talk a little differently and, and those kinds of things. Uh, I love that you guys want to stay after and talk with one another and mill about, uh, so do that today. But if you just do it outside instead of in here, that'd be great. Uh, in about five minutes, we're going to gather back up, and we're going to take about 10, maybe 15 minutes to do that. Uh, I believe the, the classrooms are, are counting on that, so they have things to do with the kids. So you can leave your kids there for just a little while longer today so that we can meet together, okay? Um, I, I don't know about you, and I don't know if you know this about me, uh, but I am absolutely starving to death for kindness, um, and so, uh, if, if that's you too, uh, first know uh, that, that there is a riches of kindness and patience in, in God and Christ for you.
But know also that part of what we're praying is that he would empower us by his spirit to, to be that, to, to propel one another towards good, good works through the encouragement and kindness we show to one another. Don't you want to be a church like that? I do. And that's what he's called us to do. So uh, receive then the promise of his kindness to you as he calls you to go, not judging, not condemning, but to come alongside, paracleoing one another, kindly leading to one another towards repentance and faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.